PM board bombs. Now, here's doctors Iltafat Hussein and Blake Briggs. Welcome back to EM Board Bombs, where Blake and I are psyching ourselves up because it's 11.30 at night and we both <laughs> worked a shift today on a Saturday. But our dedication to you made us come back and do this pod. Blake is going on vacation for two weeks. Uh, he is going to be hiking about 150 miles. So we don't know if he's going to make it back or not. So we figured this might be his last farewell pod. Blake, you got anything to say? I'm actually drinking champagne <laughs> after uh, congratulating myself on a champagne tap. Oh, congratulations. Is that for real? Uh, maybe. <laughs> Where are you going? Yosemite. Oh, yeah. you seem like the Yosemite type of guy. What does that mean? <laughs> uh, no comment. Hey, for every uh, 10 minute episode, and uh, this might turn into a 15 minute episode, we like to drop some high yield bore bombs, throw some humor in there as well when we can, and some random banter. Appreciate you guys dropping us iTunes reviews. I'm trying to get to the thousand review mark. That would be pretty awesome. Don't you think, Dr. Briggs? And we appreciate all the Twitter followers as well. Uh, you can check out our short and abbreviated podcast that is EM Rapid Bombs. You can find that in the link and on our website as well. Uh, we are linked out to that in our show notes here. But that is a online question bank, podcast question bank that we've created that allows for rapid review. How rapid is it, Dr. Briggs? It's quite rapid. There's not many things faster than that. I think the only thing recorded faster than that is the Concorde jet, which is apparently being brought back now. Thanks, United. And Jimmy Jones. I'm excited about that, to be honest. And, oh, me too. Uh, before we start with our pod, uh, we'd like to send a shout out to one of our EM Rapid Bombs premium members. You know who this is, Dr. Briggs? He's also one of our editors. He is. He is. He is the great Dr. Sean O'Sullivan up in Hamilton, Ontario at McMaster University. He sent us a wonderful note from what he described, the frozen wastes of Canada. All right. That was his description. All right. Oh, Canada. And saying that he just enthusiastically endorses the Rapid Bombs format. It is now what he has with his morning coffee. But I appreciate the message that he sent us. And uh, we like that he listens to us while he sips some coffee. Yeah, thanks again, Sean, for uh, all your hard work with the, our handouts and editing that you do. Uh, really just a big source of quality control. Hey, let's dive into this. We've got a lot of work to do today. All right. A 70-year-old male presents to your ER with a chief complaint of shortness of breath. He is hypoxic to 80% and now has a new O2 requirement of 3 liters in your ER. He had knee replacement surgery two weeks ago. He stopped taking his post-operative anticoagulation after his surgery because he thought it was making him constipated, but he did continue to take the Percocet he was prescribed. 
That makes sense. Of course. On exam, the patient has tenderness to palpation in his right calf and swelling. The patient also has a family history of clotting disorders. The patient states in the past he was put on blood thinners, but forgot why. He also states he's being worked up for cancer due to abnormal nodules that were seen on his chest x-ray recently. The MS1 who is shadowing you wonders if the patient in fact does have pneumonia. Again, this is MS1, you know, they're just in the anatomy lab, you know. You respond, no. (laughs) Which of the following is the most common EKG change present for the pathology we have described so obliquely, Dr. Briggs? Mm. Is it A, right heart strain, B, sinus tachycardia, C, T-wave inversion in anterior septal and inferior leads, or D, S1, Q3, T3? Dr. Briggs. The correct answer here is going to be choice C. Most common EKG change is T-wave inversion in the anterior septal and inferior leads, which is found in 68% of patients with PE. What? It's not a sinus tachycardia? What? I know. It's not the S1Q3, T3. What? Oh, we're going to get into this. Oh, you thought you had this because we made the beginning so easy. Yep. Here's the problem. It took us long enough, but we're actually going to cover a major disease of emergency medicine. Uh, AKI, correct? Or contrast-induced nephropathy, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, neither of those. I'm sorry. Uh, Discussing admission to medicine versus trauma? No, that's exhilarating, but uh, no, we're actually going to cover PE. It's like the bread and butter of emergency medicine. Meat and potatoes. I, I uh, I don't eat pork. All right. All right, look, look, look. So to reward our listeners, we wanted to be complete jerks with this question. You really did. Yeah, I think that. Yeah, I think that's very nice of us. <laughs> hey, we're going to talk about PE today, and it's the common form of venous thromboembolism that obstructs the pulmonary artery and its branches. We're going to focus on the classic VTE form of PE, and you know the other causes that med students have to learn about: the air emboli, septic emboli, fat emboli. Remember those crazy uh... things? They're <laughs> they're outside the scope of this podcast. There's an awesome two-page summary on the website. That covers a lot of the details on PE. It's called Saddle Up for Pulmonary Embolism. Oof, you like that? Saddle Up. Saddle, of course. I'm glad that was my idea, that title. Uh, it wasn't, but it's okay. <laughs> Let's focus on some high-yield aspects here. So first, we need to do some definitions. So we can classify pulmonary emboli based on the timing, location, and severity symptoms. And so PEs can be acute, subacute, or chronic. We're not going to cover chronic PEs. That gets into a whole pulmonary hypertension thing. Let's not go there. Mm-mm. Let's talk about location. So location in the order of most common is going to be lobar or segmental initially, followed by subsegmental, followed by saddle. So notice saddle and blight are the least common. So here's a crazy myth that I often bust every day at work. You know, there's a lot of myth busting I do daily. Um, I feel like Adam and Jamie from Mythbusters every day at work. There's a lot hey, of things. Are we Adam just, and Jamie? Like we pretty much are. But that would mean that we behind the scenes just are fighting all hate the each time. Each other. Right? <laughs> And it wasn't that the saddest thing when you learn that the Mythbusters right. hosts, Adam and Jamie, didn't like each other? Yeah, that's just, yeah. That, was, that was really upsetting. I wish I just didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, me too. Originally, it was thought saddle emboli were most associated with causing hemodynamic instability. 
but the recent data suggests otherwise. And a saddle embolus, here's a key fact, a saddle embolus does not equal massive PE. Mm. That's, a, that's such an important point here. So really a massive PE is any PE that causes hemodynamic instability. Right. And a submassive PE is any PE that causes greater than mild RV strain. And the way to really think about this is you can, it's really clot burden is what you should be thinking about. Mm, as opposed yeah, to yeah, yeah. where that clot potentially is. Can you go into the presentation, please? Yeah, so you know, look, most common symptoms, and we described many of them at length, again, obliquely trying to make it very obvious what this question was asking without you having to do a CTA chest. Most common symptoms, dyspnea, number one. Then it's pleuritic pain, so pain when taking a breath. Then calf pain and swelling, and then cough, orthopnea, hemoptysis. But you need to remember that dyspnea, pleuritic pain, calf pain, and swelling are huge. So number one is dyspnea. Now, the most common sign, again, I said symptoms before, the most common sign is tachypnea, followed by calf swelling, tachycardia, crackles, rails, murmurs, JVD. So some of the key pearls in the HPI that you're going to be taking is true exertional dyspnea. So instead of asking, do you feel short of breath when exerting yourself? You should probably be asking, describe what causes your shortness of breath. Or give me an example of when you feel most short of breath. Now, the onset of dyspnea is usually pretty sudden, usually less than an hour. PE, and, and look, the following is the most terrifying part and why we all freak out about PEs. PE is the common cause of sudden cardiac death, around 8% of patients. So again, your suspicion should always be high in those who are presenting with cardiac arrest. Syncope has been found to not be a major risk factor associated with PE. What? No, I, what I'm telling you is you should stop just getting the CT scan on every single patient with syncope. Oh, just be a little okay. more selective. Okay. Here, all right. Okay. 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 Thanks. Thanks for telling me. <laughs> In two large studies, <laughs> PE prevalence was only about 1%. So, you know, we're not recommending regular PE workups in patients who have syncope. Now, Certain patient populations, like those with CHF or COPD, can make it difficult to diagnose a PE. There's a recent study that's got a lot of buzz that suggested up to 20% of patients with COPD exacerbation had some type of PE. It's a single-center study, and some PEs were only subsegmental. The best advice here is to work up their primary complaint, and if there's a lack of improvement or symptoms or signs suggesting PE more than CHF or COPD, then don't obviously hesitate to do the workup. Let's get into the sub-segmental PEs here for a second. I'm actually doing a PE study on all the COVID patients that we saw um, in our hospital system. And I, I, I did a dive into the whole sub-segmental PEs. And it was interesting to find a couple of studies that showed that it's starting to become a bit controversial if you should even treat sub-segmental PEs. Look, we're all going to treat them. We're going to treat them, right? But it was interesting because there, there are studies that show similar outcomes in folks with sub-segmental PEs that 
receive treatment and in those that do not. Those that did not receive treatment was because they could not tolerate anticoagulation. And they did just fine as well. So when I have a resident who catches a subsequental PE or, you know, early on in their training is like, hey, I got the PE. And it's like, well, subsegmental and the patient has barely any symptoms. I really wonder if I'm helping. Really wonder if I'm helping. Do you feel like you're helping when they go home and warfarin come back with a headache? <laughs> Only if I'm ordering that CT scan of that. <laughs> exactly. Uh, there's an attending that I worked with one time who his argument when it came to discovering certain conditions like subsegmental peas or like one rib fracture, you know, right. <laughs> like the things that are like, what do you do with these? He calls it the hundred year argument. And he would ask you, what would they do a hundred years ago? And it's, <laughs> well, we wouldn't know about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's great. That's great. Yeah. What did people do a hundred years ago with one rib fracture? I know. <laughs> I know. It's like the x-ray on like, the overall benign back pain patient that turns into a CT scan that shows like the tiniest fracture. And then it's like, well, I guess it didn't really change anything. Exactly. So diagnosis of PE here starts with a chest X-ray. And, and here's the thing, although the chest X-ray is normal in like 25% of patients, it's rare to see findings specific for PE. And really here, the, the big ones that come up is the Westermark sign. Oh, yeah. And, right. and that Hampton hump. That Hampton hump, I just will never forget. And the Hampton, yeah. That Hampton hump, though. <laughs> right. That Hampton hump, though. <laughs> Honestly, out of all these signs, these silly little signs here, the Hampton hump is, is really, I think, the most commonly seen image on a, a chest X-ray on a test. And the reason is because they love to trap students and residents into thinking, oh, it's a pneumonia. Right. You know, oh, it's a big pneumonia. And it's going to be a pleural-based wedge-shaped consolidation, usually in right above that costal margin, you know. Right. And they always love to show this, and they always love to say, hey, the patient comes in short of breath with cough. What do you want to do? And they show an x-ray, and you're like, oh, pneumonia, antibiotics, bye. And, oh, sorry, you're wrong. It's PE. Yeah. So commonly seen abnormal findings include cardiomegaly, of course, elevated hemidinophoram, and pleural fusion, among other things. So, you know, there are a couple pearls that you just threw out there and knocked out when it comes to chest x-ray. Commonly seen abnormal findings, cardiomegaly, elevated diaphragm, pleural fusion, right? So if they ask that question, what are the commonly seen? These are the three you should be thinking about. It's not going to be just jumping to Hampton Hump or Westmark sign. Now, hey, why don't you talk about the EKG? Sure, sure. So EKG findings are nonspecific. And overall just limited value in the evaluation of a patient with potential PE. Obviously, you should be getting an EKG, but again, overall non-specific. Now, a normal EKG can be seen in up to 30% of patients with PE. The classic S1, Q3, T3 has a sensitivity and specificity of 54% and 62%. Retrospectively, it was found to occur in only 20% of patients with CT proven PE. Here's the key part where we th really threw you off and we were jerks with that question that we asked. Total jerks. Total jerks. Sinus tachycardia is the most common presenting rhythm in patients with PE. The most common EKG change 
is T-wave inversion in the anterior septal and inferior leads, which is found in 68% of patients with PE. So again, the most common presenting rhythm is sinus tachycardia. The most common EKG change is T-wave inversion in, in the anterior septal and inferior leads. That's crazy. Hey, what about S1? Q3 uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> right. Are we burnt out about this? Because I am. I am too. You know, and you know, we're, we're doing this in the tail end of both of us working a shift on a weekend. You know? <laughs> hey, it turns out it's not specific for a PE at all. S1, Q3, T3. However, if you see it on an EKG and a dystic patient, you, you know, obviously a PE workup probably isn't a bad idea, right? No, no. Other rare EKG findings include evidence of new right heart strain like RVH, right, heart, uh, right ventricular hypertrophy, or right bundle branch block. Both of those are less than 10% of all cases. Right. So the big thing here to think about is when, before proceeding to diagnostic testing, you need to risk stratify your patient based on what their overall assessment is and what you're going to get out of their testing. So the first step, of course, is are they pregnant or not? We're not covering pregnant patients this podcast. Right. That's a whole nother podcast you could literally do with some of the newer algorithms that have come out for PE. Then you have to decide, are they hemodynamically stable or unstable? So let's cover the hemodynamically stable non-pregnant patient. This can be your most common patient for a PE rule-out. I want you to get into Yeah, that. and again, remember, with PE, it's really you're trying to find the most efficient way to diagnose PE and to limit unnecessary testing. So like, you really need to be getting that CTPA study. So in this case, let's apply Wells criteria. Apply Wells criteria, they're high risks, greater than six CTPA. So this is a huge mistake that I oftentimes see made by residents is they'll say, Absolutely. hey, um, you know, I did Wells on the patient, so I'm going to be getting a dimer on the patient and we'll see what we find. I ask them, well, what was your Wells? And they say, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was low risk. And I'm like, well, you know, there is a scoring criteria for this, right? So um, right. they oftentimes just assume that, you know, it's more of a gestalt type thing. It's not. So apply Wells criteria. It's high risk, greater than six, go straight to the CTPA. If you get moderate risk, two to six, then it's case by case discussion. You know, you can just figure out, you know, dimer versus CTPA. Now, if it's low risk, this is going to be your less than two. This is where you really have the greatest chance of reducing unnecessary testing. If it's less than two and the patient is less than 50 years of age, you need to be thinking about PERC. And if PERC is negative, you're done. Now, if PERC is positive, then you should be you know, doing a dimer. Now, let's get back to you did it wells, the patient is low risk, and you've got someone who is older than 50, right? So older than 50 automatically pops you out of perk. So that for that patient, you get that dimer. And I think that's the pathway that's often done a lot, but oftentimes the mistake you see is folks don't really calculate well score and confirm that the patient truly is low risk. Hey, let's get into unfortunate situations, which is uh, hemodynamically unstable Oof. patients that you're concerned for PE. So if you have a high suspicion for PE in a hemodynamically unstable patient, guess what you're going to do? Perk? Not a CTA. Perk? <laughs> <laughs> not a perk, not Wells. So you're going to do immediate anticoagulation with continued supportive care 
until you're able to proceed with a CT scan of their chest. You know, bedside echocardiography really shines here. It could potentially show evidence of right heart strain, like wall abnormalities, increased RV size, abnormal septal wall motion, decreased RV function. They're not at all specific for PE, but present in like 40% of patients. In general, RV strain is, is not the most specific, unfortunately, but when a patient is tachycardic and or hypotensive and looks ill, you know, seeing that evidence of right heart strain, we're not going to get into TAPSI, you know, measurements and things like that. It gets really specific here, but those are some really key things you can find on bedside ultrasound. Sometimes you can see a clot in motion, although that's very rare. These are just golden things to look for. So obviously in patients who are hemodynamically unstable and short of breath, the bedside echo is just such a fantastic tool to use to rule out other diseases like tamponade, etc. No, great points there. And we're going to finish by talking about treatment. So unfortunately, untreated PE has an associated mortality of up to 30%. Not good. And anticoagulation clearly reduces mortality and morbidity. Most deaths occur in the first week from shock. So you know, the massive PE group. And the other groups can have complicated, more chronic issues. This is the patient eventually developing pulmonary hypertension, chronic O2 requirement, having poor gas exchange, all that stuff. Now, if the patient is hemodynamically stable, should initiate anticoagulation after you confirm the PE diagnosis. Low molecular weight, heparin, in those where oral intake is not feasible. Otherwise, think about your DOAX, think about warfarin here. That should all be discussed. For hemodynamically unstable patients, that's when you're thinking about lytics. 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 Oh, yeah. <laughs> so remember, definitive indications to be pushing lytics are persistent hypotension or shock, most widely accepted viewpoint here, or the definition of massive PE that we talked about before. A few studies have been done on this, but overall there's improved mortality in these patients. And considerations as case-by-case -case basis, severe RV dysfunction, so submassive PE, or a cardiac arrest due to PE, or free-floating right heart thrombus, Again, you can do a case-by-case -case to decide if you mm -hmm. should be pushing lytics or not. The most controversial finding for when to push lytics is right heart strain without hypotension. Right. There aren't any RCTs that have shown mortality benefit, but there have been studies demonstrating those with RV dysfunction and a submassive PE have worse outcomes than those without RV strain. We'll probably know the answer to this in the, in the coming years. Right, absolutely. You know, the other thing is, just before you push lytics, you probably should figure out some of the contraindications as well, uh, to them as well. So, you know, absolute contraindications, history of intracranial neoplasm or ICH, less than two months of intracranial trauma, injury or surgery, and then if they have an underlying bleeding disorder, or if they had a recent ischemic stroke less than three months prior. You know, it's funny, I learned this from Mel Herbert, like, like intern year when I did MRAP for a short time. And I thought this was really good. He said, just 
anything in the brain or anything risk of bleeding. He's like, only way you need to remember this. Done. Thought, thought it was a good way to think about it. Hey, uh, let's wrap this up. That's enough bread and butter today. That is. Can you take us out? Because I'm just exhausted. All right, let's summarize some key things here. So we know that a massive PE is no longer a saddle embolus. Massive PE is any PE that causes hemodynamic instability. A submassive PE is any PE that causes greater than mild right heart strain. Remember the most common symptom of PE overall, and this is easily testable. I've seen a lot of Rosh review questions on this, is dyspnea. The most common sign is going to be tachypnea. Remember, you're going to be asking about pearls in the HPI, like true exertional dyspnea. And know that the onset is usually less than one hour. It's a common cause of sudden cardiac death, about 8% overall. However, an uncommon cause of syncope, less than 1%. So we think of EKG changes here. Remember that EKG findings are nonspecific. Same with chest X-ray findings. There's really nothing on the chest X-ray that's going to help you, except for the rare test question showing a Hampton hump or Westermark sign. Otherwise, really less than 25% of cases overall with PE showing chest X-ray findings. EKG findings, again, remember, the most common EKG change. Tricky, tricky. We're very tricksy here. The most common EKG change is T-wave inversion in the anterior septal and inferior leads, which is found in about 70% of patients with PE. In hemodynamically stable, non-pregnant patients, you're going to be doing a Wells criteria first. Based on the Wells criteria, if it's low risk, moderate risk, or high risk, you're going to decide what to do further. In a low-risk Wells patient, you're going to see if you can apply PERC. If they're PERC negative, you're done. There's nothing further to do. If they are PERC positive or you can't apply PERC because they're greater than 50 years old and they're low-risk Wells, do a D-dimer. If there are moderate-risk Wells, you can discuss D-dimer versus CTA. That gets controversial. It depends on the case. And if they're high-risk Wells, we all know the answer to that. That's CTA. Anyone that's hemodynamically unstable, the answer is immediate anticoagulation followed by continued supportive care, discuss CTA, later on and then try to do bedside echo to help you out with your diagnosis. And finally, regarding treatment, in a hemodynamically stable patient, you discuss admission versus discharge. The handout goes into more detail regarding discharge criteria for these patients, and you're going to start thinking about DOAX or warfarin or low molecular weight heparin. In a hemodynamically unstable patient, we're thinking about lytics, depending if they don't have absolute contraindications. What do you think about that? Was that pretty good? That was spectacular. You know, I was impressed. Thank you. 12-hour shift. Thank you. That's impressive. No, this is not your last podcast. You better come back in one piece, yeah. all right? I can't, I can't do this without Three, you, Briggs. I can't do this 350 you. miles, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that wraps it up for us. Uh, we'll be back again uh, probably in a week or two. Mm-hmm. And if you want to listen to some of our other podcasts, you can go to emrapidbombs.supercast.tech. That podcast now has almost 100 podcast questions that we've created Um, those are very short questions two to five minutes um, around the three minute mark is where we hit it and we do just rapid questions super short with coaching as well we have an interactive aspect to our website as well where you can ask us questions it's rapid fire and we appreciate all the support we've gotten on that all the messages as well the emails folks have sent us and how they really appreciate listening to that rapid podcast uh, that gets delivered to your inbox almost daily sweet out see you next time